welcome to the Swamp Folks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. I am Allie. And we are recording in three separate locations. We're going to talk about movies today, as we always do. It's also, you know, in the early days of 2022. We've just celebrated a, another year dying and <laughs> another one being born. Um, <laughs> what did y'all do to commemorate the new year? Did y'all have fun? Did you do anything, at least to mark the occasion? Yeah, um... My parents actually came to visit for Christmas. They left a couple days earlier than expected because of Airbnb issues. They're just like unaccustomed to having people above them and also people being up all night, which something is something that as a city dweller, I've become accustomed to you for like almost two decades now. Um, right. But yeah, they, they went home a little early, but it was a great Christmas visit. And then for New Year's, uh, we got to have an in-person New Year's party uh, among my friend group this year. I have a friend who lives in a neighborhood uh, that's a little bit southeast of us, and their neighborhood really puts on a fireworks show. It's like the Blitz. There are moments where it's so <laughs> bright in the yard that you think the sun is up. That sounds extremely Texas to me. Uh, it was super fun. What about you, Allie? What did you do? I um sat at my neighbor's house while her kids were asleep so she could go out. (laughs) Uh, So I played Stardew Valley and had the smallest, smallest bottle of sparkling wine. (laughs) That was my new airplane bottle. Yeah, it's so cute. I still have it. I think I'm going to use it as a base just because it's it's so cute. (laughs) It's so small. It was exactly one glass of sparkling wine. (laughs) So that was my new year. Well, I do the same thing every year. We, We have this it used to be a party where people would like drop by and we just have like snacks and cocktails and things just sort of out. So like if you were like on your way to an actual party, you could sort of like bolster yourself up on like fried chicken and fancy cheeses uh, and then go have fun with like people who actually party for real. But while we're doing that, we, you know, marathon for two days, pretty much our favorite movies of the year. Uh, just sort of like a rewatching stuff as sort of like a retrospective. Um, but the past two years, because of COVID, no one's been invited. <laughs> but I did the exact same thing anyway. So we just did this really extravagant layout of snacks and champagne and uh, watched too many movies, including the one we're going to talk about as our main topic today. So my brain is full of content right now. Hopefully I can make some sense out of I mean, <laughs> the wreckage. An elaborate uh, array of snacks and marathoning movies for two days, actually. That sounds like the dream. So you live in the dream, your best life. I will say that, as is tradition, I managed to watch a couple of Twilight Zone episodes as they aired on the marathon that they do every year. It used to be on the Sci-Fi Channel, and I assume they still do, but they also do it on Decades, which is the channel that I get um, over the air. Did you see some good ones? Anything new to you? No, it's the same ones every year. I mean, yes, some good <laughs> ones, but it, it's the same ones every year. They never really get into the nitty-gritty details where they show the less popular ones. It's always, you know... A talking doll, and then five characters in search of an exit, and then, you know, nightmare at twenty thousand feet. You know, it's 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 usually the same classics. Ones. Yeah, the classics, the ones that everyone has seen. They don't usually, you know, break the bank. There's a comfort to that, but it's also like extremely lazy. It reminds me of like sure when is. you tune into like those like um, radio stations that are like specific decade. So like they could play any song from like the '60s to the '80s, but they play the same like twenty songs all the time. 
It's like you have so much music, you could play whatever you want, and you just uh, stick to the same playlist over and over and over again. But I guess the point of it also is like the nostalgia of hearing that stuff over and over and over again. <laughs> you know, it's always there for you. Yeah, which is comforting. Did you watch any movies besides your Twilight episodes? Uh, to clarify, it is still the Twilight Zone. It's not. Um, <laughs> I didn't watch any episodes. Not Twilight of the, the movies. I'm so of, sorry. Of Twilight. Oh. Um. No, I have mostly. I. I received the miles morales spider-man ps4 game for christmas and i played that which took up a big chunk of time um since the last time that we recorded and it was super fun and i had a great time and i can't wait to play it again and other than that i've mostly just been doing tv stuff uh some distance into midnight mass right now and i love it because you know me i love mike flanagan we talk about that on here more often than you would like, Brandon. Um, <laughs> He's okay. Well, Midnight Mass is super good. It's real good. Uh, this is him, instead of doing like a haunting TV show, this one is him sort of doing a Stephen King sort of Hunter's Stew, where there's a little bit of Salem's Lot, and there's a little bit of various other things. So big recommend for me so far, but I haven't finished it. So like Castle Rock. Yes, but I didn't watch Castle Rock and the reviews of it were pretty mixed. Mm -hmm. And it's not explicit. And I think that by allowing itself to be distanced from King's actual work and being more of a pastiche slash homage, it's a bit more open and also subject to less specific criticism. Yeah. Than like, oh, why is it like this now? Uh, You know, why does it have to be danny's half sister why you know why can't it just be but so yeah it's it's uh i I like it but that's that's kind of all that i've been up to other than we're about halfway through season nine of the x-files just to give everybody an update on that um (laughs) what about you Allie? so i have been playing my usual game that i do every year you would think i'd learn my lesson after you know the first i don't know how many times but I wait until like the last two weeks of the year and then I try to catch up on like all of these movies that everybody else has been talking about. So I have been watching quite a bit, actually. Um, I started out my grand watch of the year with The Medium. It's the recent Thai found footage horror about a uh, possessed shaman's niece. I really, really enjoyed it. I think maybe I'm a sucker for found footage horror, which I know it's kind of one of those like hit or miss genres, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. I liked all of the spookiness. I loved like the lead actress. Like she really got to play like from bubbly, like could be pop star to just absolute insanity. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. It's got like a pretty good elevator pitch, which is pretty much just that it's like the found footage version of the Wailing. Yeah. But it definitely does things with found footage that I've never seen before. Yeah, I was going to say, it's set up as like a fake documentary, but it looks like a real documentary. Like it looks so good. Yeah, they do that really well, just the format of that mockumentary style. And then also later in the picture when the niece is getting you know fully possessed... She starts interacting with the camera crew in a way that feels like a violation of some, like, you know, agreed upon thing that we don't do. Yes. But, like, she, like, uses 
the cameraman and the camera as kind of like a weapon and like a means of violence and it's really upsetting yeah it's like oh no you can't do that yeah <laughs> even though she's possessed by a demon and can do whatever she wants because yeah. you know the rules are kind of out of the window when that happens yeah i was gonna say when you're possessed you can do whatever you want yeah <laughs> i really liked that one too uh it was on my best of the year list and then it got knocked off by a late edition uh this december but it's very good. Yeah. It's one of the, one of the scarier horror films I saw. I was going to say, it goes from being just, like, straight creepy to being terrifying. Like, zero to 60. Like, nothing. <laughs> it's got an absolutely wild final half hour. Yeah. Uh, just, like, full haunted house mayhem at the end. Yes. But, yeah, I really, really enjoyed that one. Um, And then, so, last year, at the beginning of the pandemic... Or not last year anymore, <laughs> the year before, 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic when everybody was closed inside their houses, I did something I called Caged In, where I spent the day and I watched a bunch of Nicolas Cage movies. This year, I did the same thing, but with only his uh, movies of the year. So I have like a pretty good ranking of those, I feel like. Um, so my number one for this is definitely Pig, of course. It's so good. But also, I think living where it takes place is just kind of like a whole other context because it feels very much like there's this thing here where if you talk to someone who's been in Portland since the 80s, they're going to tell you how much they hate New Portland. And this movie just kind of felt like talking to one of those people and I really liked that because <laughs> I love talking to those people. They're so ridiculous. I love that scene where he um, talks about how Portland's going to be under miles of water. Yes. Uh, within the next like half century. Yes. Uh, and then uh. the kid, Alex Wolf's character, who's like trying to spook with that speech later, he's like, yeah. well, I guess I could move to Seattle. And he's like, well, fuck, fuck Seattle. Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Portland's <laughs> about to drown. Yeah. <laughs> fuck Seattle fuck anyway. Seattle. Yeah. I love that too because yeah lent again like it's very like it's very regional feeling i'm glad like a lot of other people have liked it but living here i'm like oh my god this feels this feels too real <laughs> i think if you've ever worked in a kitchen you would appreciate oh, yeah. it too no matter where you exactly. live yeah, 100%. yeah absolutely but yeah and also i mean sad but i i love the pig i oh, just heartbreaking heartbreaking I cried so hard, y'all. That's the most I cried the whole year for any movie was like going into that uh-huh. one thinking I was getting this like John Wick with a no. pig thing. And uh, yeah, I couldn't see the screen for the final like 20 minutes of it because uh-uh. I was crying into my mask yeah. and it was all fogging up it my glasses. so rough. <laughs> so good, but so rough. Yeah. So my number two of the Nick Cage year would be actually um i know this is like controversial and the swamp flicks crew but prisoners of the ghost land i think i'm the only other one who saw it so oh okay <laughs> controversial I thought, with me baby. okay controversial with you i just thought that this movie was so out of control that i can't do anything but appreciate it it just goes for broke like constantly and it's got this real like non-existent anime turned into a live action movie vibe but there's also a lot of like practical effects and like weird art cars going on and it just it's all over the place and I couldn't help but enjoy it. It's one of those movies. 
Something uh, Boomer said when we watched Sean Sono's Suicide Club came back to bite me in the ass with this one. Because, like, I love how messy and incoherent and just over the top that movie is. Yes. It's one of my favorite films of all time. And this one's doing the same thing, but it just d- didn't work for me. Yeah. Like, I can hear Boomer's criticisms of Suicide Club, like, rattling around my head <laughs> as I was watching it. <laughs> what things specifically? Just the fact that the movie's so scatterbrained and just sort of, like, goes off on tangents and... um doesn't really come together in a kind of coherent whole and just kind of felt like an empty style exercise in suicide club. I actually feel like emotionally affected by it. This time I was just like, Oh, he's just doing kooky things with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Which is fun. But I did also, I feel like it did tie it back together a little bit better than suicide club, but it is just kooky things with Nicolas Cage, but also suicide club. So good. So I understand. That one's like (laughs) best of all time material for me. That's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, I remember I remember that discussion. I remember we I was there. <laughs> <laughs> was I? Yeah. Yeah, you were there. We were all there. It's been so long. I know. You so might have mentally checked the, out halfway into the movie. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that I mentally checked out halfway into the movie, but I think that like you know, here's something that um I don't want to you know, get us off on a tangent too much, but I I think about this about uh Battlefield Earth a lot which is that battlefield <laughs> earth is a terrible terrible movie but i remember every single thing about it like it's so everything is done so wrongly and every single choice that's made is the wrong choice to such a massive extent that like every single frame of it is imprinted on my brain while things that like i had a legitimate emotional connection to i don't recall as well and i feel like i've brought that up here before yeah I don't remember what we were talking about when it came up, but the thing about Suicide Club is that I do remember it, and I remember watching it, and I remember the cinnamon roll of flesh, but everything else, it was like, it's like vapor in my mind. It was like, all I had to do was reach out my hand and like shake it a little bit, and it just like, and it was gone, (laughs) unlike some of the other things that we have watched. So unfortunately, it is not stuck in my memory, although I do remember that we watched it. (laughs) yeah it's interesting because i feel like these movies that are so scatterbrained and have just so many ideas and just go for them i feel like those are the ones that really stick in my head other than you know the ones that are bad on every level i agree and i'm kind of surprised that prisoners of the ghost land didn't connect with me because that usually is like my favorite kind of movie like i love a good mess yeah it's such a mess i don't know if it's a good mess but it's a mess (laughs) yeah and then the last one somehow in this Nicolas cage year is uh willie's wonderland uh i don't know what it was about this one that it didn't like vibe with me as much as the other two because like it's just such a good exercise in Nicolas Cage just being a presence without like even having to say anything like you can't switch him out with another actor in the movie but I think it's just I don't know I think it's everything else about the movie (laughs) I think everything else about the movie just like did not I don't know the only thing that really bummed me out was the wisecracking teens yeah if it was just Nicolas Cage beating up Chuck E. Cheese animatronics yeah and then beth grant as the uh tough as nails sheriff i know it was just the two of them she's so great in the robots (laughs) 
Yeah. I would have been so over the moon for it. I just wish the robots had been like more practical. Like there were some instances of like CG that I was just like, eh. A little bit. Yeah, I just wish there had been like entirely just messed up puppets. Something I did discover when I, I drew um, Artie the Alligator for this one when I reviewed it. Yeah. Uh, is that furries apparently love this movie. Because, like, all these, like, wow. furry accounts started liking my picture of Artie the Alligator. Oh, no. <laughs> Just one of the mascot I mean, characters. Uh, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be another controversial person here. Furry's fine. That's fine. Do what you want. Yeah, it's totally Do harmless. Do what you want with I, your life. I almost find it kind of charming when you stumble into, like, some sub-dungeon of the internet yes. subculture by mistake. Like, I'll, like, look up a movie and it's, like mpreg communities or like furry communities uh-huh. like these like niche fetishes like pop up yeah it's like oh okay there's this whole other corner of the internet uh that i was tapping into i didn't even know about i mean you know you are the one that introduced me to the wonderful christmas classic pottersville with michael shannon the michael shannon furry oh, yeah. christmas movie wait is that the one with the fake abominable snowman like the fake big bigfoot, hunt? bigfoot? Yes. yeah yeah and Judy Greer, and yeah, it's really great. That movie is something else. I, I watched that real early on yeah. in quarantine, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> I like to call it It's a Wonderful Yif. Oh, that's good. I don't know why they didn't go with that title. <laughs> it's a very furry-friendly movie. It is. It really is. So that was my uh, Nick Cage ranking of the year all wrapped up. I'm sorry, real quick before we move on from Pottersfield or yeah. Pottersville or whatever it's called. Yeah. I remember it so I actually like had to go to my book of quotes that I keep because <laughs> while watching that movie there was a quote in it that was just so if a snake had ears, would you screw it? It's from that movie and I'm like, What? Hey goodness. If a snake had ears, would you screw it? I don't yeah. remember it being a movie. That was furry adjacent. Is it like, is oh. it just that furries like it? No, or it's full there... on. There's furries. No, there's furries in the there's movie. There's furries God. in the movie. Like I said, I reached out my hand into the ether and I shook it. <laughs> <laughs> it just dispelled. Okay. Sorry, go on. Moving on. Uh, that wraps up my uh, Nick Cage ranking of the year. is Pig, Prisoners of the Ghostland, and then Willy's Wonderland. And then... I have also watched another of uh, Brandon's favorites of the year. I don't know if I have watched others other than the one we're discussing. I watched I Blame Society. Hell yeah. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, It's really great. I described it afterwards as the uh, sassy sister film of American Psycho. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just... I love people making DIY movies and then just they rule. I don't know. It's it's great. Yeah, it's definitely a movie about making movies. Like yeah. you can feel her very, being very frustrated that she doesn't have more money. Uh-huh. <laughs> to like make a bigger movie than this. Yeah. And usually movies about making movies like they're very like a specific like Oscar winner sort of category and this one's so like anger it's so anger so angry so like bratty (laughs) you know and it's it's amazing have you seen man bites dog i have yeah yeah this one compared to that a lot but i've never seen it Uh, yeah i could see that i could see it i'm gonna say that i i blame society is better but i think that's just because just good for her for 
you know, wrecking those film bros. <laughs> uh, just good for the uh, equal to, but legally separate from Duplass brothers. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you get murdered in the film. <laughs> yeah. So I also watched the documentary All Light Everywhere. Oof. Oh, the yeah. black uh, whole documentary. No, this oh, is Oh wait, no, the... I'm sorry. I'm thinking of um all the the edge of all that we know. Sorry. Go no, on. no, but that sounds good too. Uh no, this is the one about uh video surveillance and the police state and film as a whole and just watching. Right, right. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, but maybe it's just too a little too like philosophical for me. I think maybe I just wanted to see more of like that neuroscience experiment. Like you know, obviously it's dark and rough, and oh, the guy from the Taser Company is terrifying. Literally the devil. He's like the scariest human. <laughs> He's so scary. I don't think I came out of it feeling as much like you did, Brandon, like, oh, all films are evil. But I think part of that is like, I already knew so much of like the revolver the photographic revolver and like that early like film history yeah that was new to me yeah i had already felt that way a little bit so (laughs) but i I think he drew pretty like clear line though from like the revolver the rifle yeah and then the um the cameras that were strapped to pigeons and like used to like surveil like military positions and yeah the failed pigeons (laughs) the failed pigeon spies because you can't yeah you can't get pigeons to these they're too pure okay i just thought he did a good job of like drawing a like long history of people like making this automated tech that's yes. supposed to surveil without a bias yes. like it's always been bullshit and it's mm-hmm. always been used to like cover police and military action as yep. like you know morally good um and it just made me feel sick to my stomach yeah. watching it um yeah a lot of it was new to me though to be fair so maybe i just hadn't set aside time to think about that before oh, yeah. <laughs> and the movie made me deal with it. No, not everybody dropped out of film school, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, I liked it. I did. I liked it a lot. But yeah, I think once things start getting like philosophical, I kind of just want to like roll my eyes. I don't know. It's probably the worst reaction, but <laughs> if, if it's something I agree with, I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like he doesn't. I don't feel like he like Theo Anthony. He's got two movies that I've seen. This one in Rat Film, which was about like rat populations in Baltimore and how like that's also a racist extension of the police state is the way that like rat control is is um, handled. Yeah, I felt like in both instances, he's showing you a lot of stuff, but not telling you what the connections are. Yeah. So like, I guess it is philosophical because it's about like big heady topics. But it didn't feel like too explainy or you yeah, know, it's not wordy. too explainy. I just some of the voiceover, I guess. But also, I really enjoyed um, with the spy plane and like the community meeting. Yeah, that whole conversation is so fascinating. And he left a lot of that in there, even though it was pretty damning about his own movie. Yes. Like, Exactly. They're like, why are you in here filming us for like white audiences? Like, what are you gonna do with this footage? Why is there only a white guy behind the camera? Yeah, that was so great. So yeah, I I enjoyed it. Um, I definitely have not watched enough documentaries from this year, so I 
I was glad to at least sneak one in. Should probably check out more, but or this last year. Oh, I'm gonna keep saying this year until <laughs> March. I almost made a joke about how I hope I remember enough about this movie to talk about it. Since I watched it last year. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm ready. So I just have a couple of more and uh they're not great. I watched Cruella. And I think the thing about it is it's a disappointment because it could be so good. It's almost great. Yeah, it's almost there. And there's so much good in it. But my main thing, I think I'm just going to say is it should have been gayer, honestly. Just Disney's I guess. Af- Disney's afraid <laughs> of it. Disney's afraid of the gays. And I thought it was pretty fabulous, honestly. Like the, it her was, like Jenny Humphrey fashion moments are pretty gay. They are. <laughs> they are. But I thought it could have even been more. Yeah. Especially like with her friend Art, who's just like veiled like queer. Oh uh, yeah, I hate know? that there are like gay side characters that exactly. like have one line or like uh-huh. you know, yeah. something that they could cut out for the Chinese or Russian cut. Yes. Uh, easily and still sell the film. Exactly. That's pretty annoying. I'm pretty tired of that. Um, not that Disney wants to hear my opinion. Because any of my opinions about Disney is just going to be negative based on the fact that they're super rich. But the other one I watched that was also Disney um, and pretty rough is uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Oh, really? I... Okay, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it because I kind of forgot about it. Yeah. And I've been meaning meaning to circle back on that one because, you know, I haven't really been paying attention to Marvel much at all. I, you know, I went and saw Black Widow and that was like my first time back in a theater after getting vaccinated. But I was interested in that one, but I wasn't going to go to a theater to see it because there was like surging and then I had no interest in seeing the Eternals, but... I am trying to figure out how I'm going to go see Spider-Man safely. Um, yeah. But I, I I, do want to hear your thoughts on Shang-Chi. I think my biggest thing is maybe if I had seen it in theaters, I, I was just saying this earlier. Marvel movies to me are, I go and I see them in theaters and it's all fine and dandy. And then I sit on it and whoosh, they're gone. Yeah, yeah. Whoosh. And also, it's just, you know, afterwards, I'm just like, eh. eh. It's the uh, Scorsese amusement park ride analogy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I When Scorsese said that, I was like, I agree with you, old man. And I <laughs> am not able to say it because I'm not a rich old man that people can make fun of. I'm just a regular millennial that people can make fun of and I'll cry. <laughs> I don't think any of those movies I've ever had my opinion improve on them ever. Like, I don't think any of them get better with time. You know, we used to do the Agents of Swamp Flicks feature, and we mm-hmm. stopped right before Doctor Strange because I had no interest in oh, providing money. Not great. You know, I think that it is one of the more, like, uh, visually adventurous ones. It is, but. But. I don't find Benedict Cumberbatch very compelling as a lead Yeah, in anything, really, but especially not in that. And I haven't yeah. really had any interest in revisiting it. And 
there are some that I'm like, wow, this is like really great. Like, uh, uh, Endgame is like a really great series finale for those movies for me. It had, you know, as a really as like a very long superhero soap opera, which is what they really are. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to carry water for like the Disney Corporation. Like they own everything, they ruin everything. You know, they are actively making like movies. Worse. I mean, they just like, pander. Oh. That's like their deal. Yeah. But I will say, you know, very rarely do they go up, in my opinion, after I see them. Like, I really yeah. thought Endgame was strong. I thought it was a good ending. Obviously, it was not going to be the ending because this is a money making franchise. So it was never going to stop there, obviously. They still have more to pander. They still have more pandering to do. They have, you know, over half a century, like three quarters of a century worth of material to mine and use names from. And, you know, whatever. That's the way things are now. And we've all got to live with it, whether we want it or not. But a lot of times they will, I will look back on them and enjoy them less. I'll have that experience where I see them in the theater and I really enjoy them. And then the longer I sit on them and the more I think about them, the less I think of them. I think yeah. Captain Marvel is the biggest example of that where I was sort of enthralled by it in theaters, but looking back, almost everything about it is is pretty bad. And it's not very critical of military interventionism, you know, and that's sort yeah. of was the problem with a lot of them, which is, you know, why they are considered by many and rightfully so to be kind of copaganda or at least like military propaganda. I mean, superheroes in general have some iffy morals, so... Yeah, they can lean towards fascism if you're uh, yeah. looking at them through like a political lens. Um, but I don't know that you necessarily have to. <laughs> yeah, I think that's my other problem. Is I'm like, ugh, <laughs> what gives them the right? Uh, I appreciate it more, the Marvel movies, like, philosophically, because so often they're dealing with this, like, cosmic threat or this, like, supernatural horror. And it's like, all right okay, fine, you're not just dealing with average crime, whatever. But Yeah, it's it's yeah. not like your your Gotham problem, right? Oh, Where like it's... if oh. you learn if you <laughs> if you understand enough about how society functions and like how society systemically oh, <laughs> like Batman. you know, yeah, exactly. Batman is just going around beating up poor people if you really get down to it. It's not poor just poor people in a city he's exploiting and could easily fix. Yeah. Now, I will say that a lot of the times in the comics, they do make it a point that he is trying to solve things on two fronts by just pouring money into improving the state of Gotham for what it's worth. Again, I'm not here to carry water for Batman either. Don't. But uh, I, you know. More yeah, rich it, people that don't need you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not. I'm not here to simp for, you know. Elon Musk. If any, I, I think that that's pretty clear. <laughs> if I haven't made that clear by now, welcome to your first episode of Swamp Flicks. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I uh, like for instance, yeah, I, I, I. Anyway, sorry, you said that you saw Shang Chi and it got less interesting the more you thought about it or something like that, and that, uh, that put me off on that tangent. But uh, what, yeah, what, how did sorry, you feel about yeah. it? I, I was just saying, like generally, that's how Marvel movies are. It's gotten to the point where. I just, like, don't even see them. If somebody asks me about them, I'm like, I don't like them. Because, yeah, it I don't get much out of them. 
Um, so maybe, you know, I have that bias, but it just felt like so many of the special effects looked so bad. They do seem to be getting worse. Yeah, they just looked so bad. It just, I was like, oh my god, you know, and it's cool because you have this movie that's basically entirely an Asian cast, which is awesome, but then, yeah, you have these horrible special effects and, you know, Michelle Yeoh doesn't even come in until the last, like, 15 minutes. I'm like, what is, you wasted her on this. Um, (laughs) And the writing is typical, like, superhero writing where they just want to, like, tell you this whole story and also, like, suddenly people know Kung Fu. You know, so I guess I just wasn't really impressed at all. I thought it was, you know, boring average at best. I have friends who they went to like an Airbnb. They were like traveling and they had never watched any of the Marvel movies. And they were staying somewhere that had like the, you know, DVD setup that you sometimes see at Airbnbs. And it was like, uh, <laughs> it was like, the, it was like Avengers Infinity War, I think it was. It might have even been in-game, but I think it was Infinity War. And they tried to watch it and they were like, This doesn't make any sense. And they were very angry. And I yeah. and I I was like, you know, there are a lot of things that are legitimate criticisms of this franchise. Whether it be the monopolization effect of the like creative uh or like the distributor. Um, you could take aim, you know, issue with like what you're talking about with the sort of special effects getting worse is a symptom of the fact that like people are going to uh, watch it because it's Marvel. That and computer visual effects animators are not unionized. Oh, they're um, not paid nearly enough at all. It's horrible. One of the biggest companies like went bankrupt. It's like that bad. Well, and like puppeteers and costume designers and practical practical effects artists are unionized. And that's part of Disney's whole deal is that they don't have to pay the special effects visual artists that much because they're not unionized as they would if they were doing practical effects, which would make better movies. But unless or until people start being more critical about like those particular aspects, which I don't think we can expect to see, they're never going to start using more practical effects or improve those effects. They've just got everybody over a barrel because that's... That's the peak move of anti-union <laughs> capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's a two-pronged problem. Like, they're setting up these movies in such a way that you need them in se- sequential order to understand the next one. So you have to follow the story so you get the big one that comes out. But then, you know, yeah, like you said, like, they got people over a barrel and... Like, they know how to pander, and they know how to not pay people. <laughs> As a consumer and a customer, I don't have, um like, a moral problem with the, like, films being, not making sense to people who have not caught up. Like, to me, having that criticism is, like, opening a book to the last chapter oh, yeah. and not understanding what's happening and somehow blaming the author for that. That's not the author's fault. It's, it's the way that you have chosen to consume it. And that's fine. Especially the, the, the place where that has like an ethical, like uh, where that collides with me ethically 
is as far as like Disney Plus creating a block between the viewer and their ability to actually get caught up. And when it comes down to it, I don't know if you all remember this, but it was news earlier this year that Disney would not be releasing their Marvel television programs on DVD, which doesn't seem like a big deal for people like us. But then you remember getting those DVDs from the library, like you often do with films, Brandon, is often the only way that people who are not as economically um, well off, even as we are, even though (laughs) none of us are wealthy or even doing great, all, all of us are at least semi-comfortable at the moment we don't worry about food right we're housed uh (laughs) yeah for now (laughs) right and so i that does create an insurmountable barrier for a lot of people but i that's the only place where it becomes like a moral issue for me is when they deliberately make something so that you cannot even get it from the library no matter how long you wait that I have a problem with, but the just them having these things build on each other in the like a serial format so that they have to be consumed in a certain way in order to be understood is just like like serialized television for me. Like it doesn't I don't have the moral qualms with that. I don't have so much a problem with that other than there's just so goddamn many. Yeah. I understand, you know, wanting to watch other movies to get a movie that's like jumping in to lord of the rings at return of the king like i understand that but it just kind of feels like there should be like maybe a couple main ones but it just is this layered complex madness i don't know and maybe that's just my personal like apathy where i'm like well i'm just never gonna never gonna be on top of it because i'm never going to sit through like 50 marvel movies i guess i'm also spoiled because the alamo draft house whenever they do a showing they do have someone put together kind of like a previously on that Mm. tells you mostly what you need to know which i don't need but so for instance like my (laughs) my mom and my aunt were visiting whenever endgame came out and we did go see it in theaters and they had not seen a couple of the ones that had come before but like they were like you know it was quote unquote revealed you know how Nick Fury lost his eye or whatever in Captain Marvel so it's like that was included in the previously on and my aunt was like oh okay so like I guess <laughs> I don't know I feel like that must exist on YouTube as well I mean, in some yeah. format by someone in order to get you up to speed if that was what you really wanted yeah but that involves going to YouTube and listening to YouTube people that's fair <laughs> I, I I think like, you know, for me, I think a film that is just a film should be complete in and of itself. I don't think that like, if you're going to go see the new Star Wars movie, that you should have had to have read like the visual encyclopedia and the comic book set between episodes, you know, in and in plus one, in order to make sense of what's happening in film in plus one. But I, I guess, like for me, if it's if it's all, as long as you're watching just the movies, I don't know. I, I I guess I don't really even know what I'm arguing anymore. It's okay. You're just saying like <laughs> it's, it's fair to want people to watch ones that build up to the other, and I'm just saying as a grouchy person 
That's so many. <laughs> I didn't yeah. get mad when I saw the title Neon Genesis Evangelion 3.0 Volume 6 Sub B. I was just like, oh, that's not for me. That's for somebody <laughs> who's been paying attention, which I have not been doing. Uh, you know, it's easy to ignore stuff you don't care about. I guess the difference is that with Marvel, they suck up so much oxygen yes. in just like cultural discourse that like yes, you kind of have enough. to be aware of it at all times. And it's like yeah. very suffocating. Like, especially like the Spider-Man movie that just came out, literally they were canceling screenings for other movies yeah, <laughs> in theaters I saw to make that. more money. Not There's great. a new Spider-Man movie? See, this is how out of the loop I am. But, oh, yeah, because you just said you were going to watch Spider-Man. But you can't oh, be mad God. at the theaters for doing that because, you know, no. it's been a fucking struggle for them to, like, keep their head above water recently. It's just, like, sad that there are people who only watch this stuff because there is so much of it. So, like, if you're yeah. only going to go to the theater three to five times a year, and there are three to five Marvel movies every year, that's going to be your entire cultural palette, uh, which is kind of sadly limited, I think, um, because of all the things that this giant corporation won't risk. There's a there's a yeah. high floor and a low ceiling. Like, they won't take much risk. So, the quality control is pretty good, but, like, also, the artistic highs are pretty low. Yeah. yeah. So, I it's agree. pretty sad that that's most of the stuff that people engage with now. I guess I feel like there's just so much inertia at this point that the quality control is falling and they have no reason to improve it because as soon as the next big, like high funded, high profile one comes out, people are still going to have to have watched the like average ones in between. That's my main takeaway is just like this giant inertia machine that is going to like cut quality where they can um i i don't i don't mean to end my uh long list of movies on a bummer but that was the uh <laughs> last one before titan that i watched so brandon maybe you can uh lift us up out of the movie bummer what have you been watching well i'll keep this short just to keep it on topic with 2021 yeah. movies but like also this ties directly into what y'all were just talking about um i watched the matrix resurrections uh, and it was the last movie that snuck onto my um, top 20 films of the year list. And I did not expect to like it as much as I did. But it's also specifically about this kind of like nostalgia driven IP obsession that has taken over like all major Hollywood productions. Um, the first 15 minutes of the new Matrix movie is like the worst nightmare, like Marvelification version of the Matrix, where there's like these new hip characters with like asymmetrical bisexual haircuts like watching <laughs> old scenes from like the the original movie and like commenting on them in these like kind of quippy like one-liners these kind of like joss whedon like jokes and you're like watching this being like my fucking heart is broken <laughs> like how spiritually <laughs> bankrupt for these like new cool poochie characters to come in and just re-watch scenes from the movie that i love from 20 years ago and then 15 minutes into the movie you realize what you've been watching is a simulation within a program in the matrix and it pulls out from there and it turns into what I can only describe as Lana Wachowski's new nightmare. <laughs> yes. Basically Warner brothers told the Wachowskis that um, they were going to make a new matrix movie, whether or not they would be involved. And I don't know what the contractual obligations there were, but uh, one of the sisters opted out and the other one opted in. Uh, Lana decided to come back and, basically make a movie about how Warner Brothers was like holding her hand to the fire and like made her revisit the Matrix and how 
miserable it's been for this like work of art that's defined her career to have been misconstrued by all these like right wing idiots over the years who just like didn't get it. Mm. Um, and she specifically calls out the movie studio. She calls out people who like take these very literal and wrong headed views of her art. Um, and she calls out all the like nostalgia bait Easter egg obsession with like fans who like only care about like plot holes and like callbacks. Um, and she gets all this like anger and vitriol out of the way and like commenting on modern blockbuster filmmaking and then about halfway through the movie, she kind of calms down on that and it becomes basically just another Matrix sequel um, and about like this like true love romance between Neo and Trinity. And it's like super sincere, hard on its sleeve, like pure nerd Wachowski-isms, which I usually don't love that much from them. Like I'm not a huge fan of most of their films. I, I find them like fun, but not like my thing really. But something about the like, ironic shit posting of the first half and the like super sincere nerddom of the second half, like really won me over with this film. Like I, I, it's the one movie like I really want to talk about a lot besides Titan. <laughs> like uh, I could have just as easily made y'all watch the matrix and I could have talked about it just as long, even though Titan was, you know, my favorite movie of the year. And this one's like pretty good. So I, I don't know if y'all yeah. were avoiding this or saving it or I don't know. It's very good. I wasn't. Um, My big thing is like, I didn't want to go to the movie theater and I don't have HBO. Yeah. <laughs> I I do have HBO and I was actually waiting for Matt to come back from Christmas and then we just haven't yet. And we're going to have to this week, I, I told him, because he's about to have to go take a piece of artwork across country. So, wow. Um, like, I, I'm hoping to get you my top list for publication within the next week and a half because I know that that's January already and that's what we do but I have been waiting to try and fit that one in I think I'm going to limit myself to five and it's going to be hard but I'm going to do it I think that's way better than like forcing yourself to like watch you know all the like prestigious films of the year something I'm really conscious about right now is how all of the movies that people really exalts all come out in December to February. Um, you know, as far as like wide release goes, so you have all these like critics lists that are like power of the dog, drive my car, licorice pizza, all these movies that are like only in theaters or not out yet. Um, and like all the lists kind of look the same. And I'd much rather yeah. have like a personal list. Like these are the movies I happen to see this year. And these are the ones that meant something to me. Yeah. But that being said, I do think um, if you want to squeeze in the Matrix Resurrections, uh, it's like more worthy of a look than I would have expected from Ma- the Matrix 4 because I did not care about 2 or 3 very much. Um, and I thought this one was great. Does it kind of fit into like Scream 4 where it's sort of a commentary on itself? Well, I guess you already said that. Yes, it is. It's very new nightmare. Okay. Um, I have not seen most of the scream movies to my shame. Uh, and I know there's what? a new one coming up, so I might need to fix that this year. Yeah. I mean, scream four is threatening to leave to be any day now. So you should get on that. I will say with this, what the reason I'm saying new nightmare is because it's not as I would say subtle as maybe some of the scream stuff is. Um, I like haven't not seen four. I'm not sure that that's an accurate statement, but you know, in New Nightmare, like how Robert England and like Wes Craven are a character on the screen and they're like directly telling you about how the philosophy of the Nightmare on Elm Street 
films have been like tainted and perverted by the movie industry over the years and how there's like this real sincere heart to it that's been forgotten. That's what this movie's doing. It's not subtle. It, it feels like she's tired of being subtle and misunderstood. And she's like, okay, I'm going to directly explain to the camera to you what my movies are about. Um, and you're going to have to like sit there and listen and deal with it. And then I'm going to get as sappy as I want to be because <laughs> it's my show. <laughs> it's Fair very enough. confrontational. I know the right wing has hated it. You know, Fuck them. I'm glad. Good. Drown in your tears, you little piss babies. <laughs> I did not see the first one until... 2020 and i loved it but it also like it drove me crazy because like from the get-go i was like this seems like a trans narrative for sure like i don't understand like how it was interpreted any other way (laughs) uh kind of drove me insane a little bit because like even at the get-go like trinity's like yeah a lot of people think i'm a man just because (laughs) of like her being a hacker i'm like and then there's the switch character and all these other things yeah I mean, exactly. to be fair, it is a pretty flexible metaphor that can be mm-hmm. applied to a few different things. Like, I think there's like an economic politics to it as well. Not that those two things are separate, obviously. But yeah, to see the right wing glom onto it. It's like it's like Ted Cruz or whoever, like working out to Rage Against the Machine and then getting mad when Rage Against yeah. the Machine tweets something political. <laughs> you know, like it's like there's a kind of willful ignorance um, with this kind of art something that's massively popular and obviously left us at the same time so it's kind of fun to watch a creator tell the fans to go fuck themselves like i find that very thrilling (laughs) (laughs) yeah that I've always thought she has no contours. Like she's not channeled, she's not finite. She's like this kind of like, you know, vapid somehow uh, being, and she's only driven by impulses. And so impulses overflow from her in every direction in a very chaotic way because she's never been looked at. So she has no contour. She cannot be, you know, defined in some way because no one defines her. I mentioned a few times my best of the year list, mostly because I published it tonight, so it is on the top of my brain. Uh, My favorite movie of 2021 was Julia Ducarneau's sophomore film, Titan. Uh, Her first movie was Raw, which rated very highly in our best of the year list, whatever year that was released, and also our best of the decade list. So this is very like anticipated uh, follow-up. And I ended up enjoying it more than Raw. And it was because it doubled down on things I liked about Raw. Also enjoyed it more than Raw. Huh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no, um, I will say that yes, I was so excited because I'm very fortunate to live in like a city that frequently has like, you know, I- I'm not in a coastal elitist city like New York or LA, but Austin is a very film heavy city. It's a very film oriented city. And, you know, uh, aside from things that have come out recently about people getting not very good and uh, racially charged feedback on their submissions to South by Southwest, which I can't speak to. I've never been involved with, but I certainly believe that, you know, I often get to see like the movies that are much anticipated like raw raw was promoted kind of endlessly before I saw it. And I did go see it kind of before it had a wide release and I was able to get like my review out the next day because it was so 
it was so hot and heavy in my brain that to, you know, I can't really put it any other way. And that I was like one of the last to see Titane. I was like, not very happy. I was like, I, I wasn't going to say anything about it at the time, but you were like, I saw it. I'm going to go ahead and post my review. I was dying of envy. Um, <laughs> but please go on. I will say, I think this is more of a me movie than it is a you movie, uh, just based on our tastes from over the years. But it did have a lot to do with what's going on in Raw. And I think there's a lot of like callbacks visually to that film. There's like, yeah. you know, the main character writhing under her sheets, um, which is its own like little temporal space. Uh, that's like its own little world down there. Um, and her scratching at her skin, which is very raw. And yeah. then um, the Literally. main character of Raw, the actor, plays a character with the same name in this same film and name. gets murdered on screen. <laughs> and I don't know yeah. uh, if that was like her killing her darlings from her past. And like, you thought this was your grandma's <laughs> you know, uh, upsetting horror <laughs> film. I'm going to make it even more fucked up. But um, what I really liked about it that, it continues from raw. It's just like an ambiguity in themes and like raw is this cannibal coming of age horror film where this girl goes to college and all these awakenings happen in her, like these like thirsts and these like deep in her psyche, like forces come to the surface in college and you can apply a pretty wide range of metaphors to that. Not unlike the matrix. Uh, it, it can be like a lot of things to a lot of different people, but it feels very like cathartic and like, tactile and just like upsetting in a way that you know really just releases stuff from like deep in your brain and i feel like titan does the same thing um it's just really focused on gender and like this one character's yes. like gender journey in a way that yes. i don't think rod necessarily does so it's, it's like extending that ambiguity to yeah. a new theme i think raw is kind of like just like the monstrous like deal of coming of age as like a woman whereas like this is more of like gender is fucked <laughs> <laughs> yeah raw has kind of a ginger snaps uh jennifer's body yeah. thing going on this is a different beast yeah uh also i just like funny but appropriately disgusting fact is like i could not have timed this movie with all its like gross like pregnancy like stuff better because like i'm like on my period like watching this and <laughs> cramping and i'm like yep <laughs> just rip it out <laughs> one thing i want to ask before we go any further we are all in agreement that this movie is hilarious right oh it's yes. pretty funny yeah okay okay <laughs> because i was watching it and laughing and initially cat was not laughing with me at all and i was like as like cat, the idea that this woman got pregnant by a car—that's like inherently funny to me. Like I didn't. Yeah. I was like, the, 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 it's so absurd that of course it's it, you know, even though it's harrowing and horrific and like unerotic, like sexual in a completely non-erotic way, it's still also very very funny. The thing that everybody was talking about, which is her having sex with the car, in my mind, I wasn't sure what that was going to mean right like what was that going to mean when i actually finally got a chance to see it what was how was that going to be portrayed because in my mind i kept thinking about southland tales yeah the car mounting the other the car. car mounting the other car and i'm like surely it won't be that 
And it wasn't. It's more um, the High Life uh, fuck box. It's more the uh, sort of abstract approach in this one. Yeah. I guess I wasn't expecting that to happen, like, first thing in the movie. <laughs> I mean, I know it's not, like, first thing, but so early on in the movie. And I'm glad. Like, I'm glad that was only just the beginning. I'm glad it gets that out of the way quickly because the movie, I think, risks being memefied in that way. Like, this is the movie yes. where a woman has sex with a car and then has the car's baby. And to me, right. that is such a, like, reductive, small portion of what it is that, like, it kind of has to do that right out the gate. Yeah. Because the first half hour of the film is pretty much anything anyone talks about. And I guess because it was not just widely available for a while, you don't want to, like, spoil it for other people. But I feel like a good chunk of the film just really hasn't been discussed out in the open on, like, podcasts or in reviews because, you know, kind of walking on eggshells, you don't want to, like, reveal what the movie's actually doing. So I think this is a pretty good time to go full spoilers. Like, I wouldn't hold back anything. It's been out for months. It's available to rent for, I believe, like, 5 or $6 right now. Um, it, it's not inaccessible in a way it might've been when it was only playing in theaters in like a few major cities. The first half of the movie is about this like kind of car show stripper. Uh, she like erotically dances on cars as like a model at these like conventions. And she's kind of a celebrity in that niche subculture, which I believe does not exist <laughs> at least in the way it's depicted here. <laughs> it's kind of this like fairy tale realm of like hyper macho, fetishism uh, and that kind of like Russ Meyer, Kenneth Anger kind of way where like beautiful cars and hot women are like kind of the same objectified erotic object, but she's very good at her job and it attracts people to her and they want to touch her body because of that and become like intimate with her. And um, she is kind of sociopathic, at least in the fact that, like, she just doesn't relate to human beings at all. She relates to cars and machines more than humans. Um, And so when people touch her and violate her, like, distance, uh, where she wants to keep a distance with the rest of the flesh of the world, um, she kills them. And she's kind of the serial killer that has a body count that is, like, playing on the background in news stories. And eventually her spot gets blown up and she has to go on the run. Uh, I'm I'm going very quickly over a lot of what happens in the first half here to get to the meat and potatoes, which is that she becomes an imposter. She disguises herself as the missing son of this firefighter, uh, this guy who is like the chief firefighter at this like um, very small closed in community of like muscle bros. Uh, She poses as his missing kid, you know, 15, 20 years later, she like breaks her face and shaves her eyebrows to make herself more ambiguous in her features. But it's pretty obvious she's not his kid. And he kind of buys into the fantasy that his kid has returned. And that keeps getting pushed as the movie goes on. Like he keeps getting confronted with the fact that this is not actually his son, but that they have this like understood unspoken contract that she will act as his son even though she is pregnant with a car's baby um, and is binding both her chest and her belly with ace bandage in a way that is um, becoming increasingly um, grotesque and detrimental to her health um, until it is undeniable at the end. Like she, she and he can no longer deny that she is a pregnant woman and not this missing boy. Um, and they have this like very tactile wrestling match really, where he has to deliver her car baby in the final scene. And I think 
people have had two separate reactions to this movie. You either react to it one of two ways. Either it is an intensely cathartic, all burnt to the ground, nuclear wreckage of gender fuckery. Where like, uh, she, um, has this journey from like not caring about human beings and only relating to machines over the course of the film through these like purely masculine, like macho social rituals in the firehouse. She learns to relate to another human being, which is this like father figure um, by the end. And then the other reaction that people have is that it's just pointlessly grotesque. It does a lot of disgusting things with the human body, especially the assigned female at birth body um, throughout the movie. Um, and it's just kind of for its own sake provocation. Um, and I think that's really like a reductive way of looking at it. It reminded me a lot of the wild boys, which is like my favorite movie of the past decade, if not my lifetime, um, which is like the same kind of like completely fucked gender meltdown, just explosion of just like, uh, people weaving in and out of a, a different um, identities and presentations and like um, just losing themselves in that exploration and then learning to relate to other people in a way that's not just pure violence. Um, and I found it very cathartic myself. I could see how if you don't tune into what it's doing, then it is just like empty provocation. And I don't fault anyone for not liking this movie, but I am curious about how y'all reacted to it. Obviously I am of the gender is fucked category. I don't think any of the grotesqueness and, like, provocation against, like, the assigned female at birth body is just provocation for provocation's sake. Like, I think this is very much, like, the standards for gender and not feeling at home in your body is detrimental to your health. You know, that is a fact. And the whole, like, ace bandage thing. It is so rare that you see something showing someone improperly binding their chest and, like, it actually having an effect. Like, seeing the damage that it is doing on her as she's, like, is slowly, you know, just kind of falling apart into this role. Yeah, so, I mean, I really liked it in that way. Also, the weirdly wholesome firefighter dad (laughs) (laughs) like this weirdly wholesome bro dad i i don't know i was i was was charmed (laughs) yeah it's like a really hard aggressive combative environment that she's going into but she finds this like solace in that where like she never really felt at home where she starts um, and to have this like kind of like hard machine like bro factory that he's running uh where she gets to like mosh with other muscle boys she really like feels at home there, I think, in a way that she never understood before. And they have their own tender moments. Like they dance together. Yeah. Um, they like experience this sort of like camaraderie um, that isn't unlike her like stripping on the car. There is like kind of a parallel there, but uh, it feels very separate from the world where she starts. Yeah. And I think there's a trajectory there. Like it's not it's not just like one circus act after another. Like I feel like there is like a narrative arc between those two worlds i think you know and there's this big turning point in like the scene where he teaches her cpr yeah where it's just kind of this big turning point of you know she's been killing people and now she's like actually like saving someone's life having physical contact with this person like 
in a very uncomfortable way. He's training her to be a good firefighter and training her to be a good son at the same time. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Boomer, what were, what were your thoughts? Well, I loved it, for one thing. Just to Hell get yeah. this out, out there, <laughs> first and foremost, I loved it. You know, it's interesting to me because the way that you're just defining it as sort of the anti-raw... I sort of felt that as well, but more in the actual like backstory, right? Because at the beginning of Raw, we learn about this family that Justine is a part of, where we learn that they are not just vegetarians, but like fiery vegetarians, right? Where it's like, oh, if she accidentally discovers that there meat, there's meat in something, she'll spit it out, but in a way that's like almost childlike, you know, like if you or I or any of us as adults, let's say we take a bite into something and find something in there that's like gross. We don't just like open our mouths and let's let that thing fall out of our mouth the way that like a child does when they're like doing a demonstrable, like, Oh, I don't like this kind of spitting something out. Does that make sense? Yeah. She has been trained to do that. <laughs> like, uh, it's not like a conscious decision. It's like a triggered response to any meat. She like spits it out like a little kid. Yes. Like in an, in an infantile way, almost. Yeah. And we know this about her family and, you know, that they have, because of it, she's never had meat. And so that's why having this meat creates or having, you know, being forced to eat this animal part as part of this hazing ritual unleashes something in her. And in this, we know a little bit about our Leeds family, but almost the little bit that we know doesn't tell us anything about her behavior. So, you know, the film starts with her making these car noises, right? Which to me implies that from the very beginning, she has had more of an affection for vehicles than for other people. Because her dad's like staring at her as she uh, makes the car noises. He's like looking at her with total disgust. Like yeah. turns up the radio yes. so he doesn't have to hear her making her engine noises. Yeah, it's not it's not very loving and it's not a very kind familial environment. So, okay, we get this inference that she has always had more of a connection with machines than with people and especially with cars. And that's made even more manifest after this damage, right? So like... Uh, her brain is damaged in this accident that is caused by her father prioritizing getting her to shut up over <laughs> getting her safely where they need to go. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the immediately fast forwards to her in the present doing her sexy car dance and then doing her sexy car stuff. And then, you know, we see her with her family and there's no connection between her and her father. Her mother is barely connected to her. So it's an inverse of Raw in that we actually kind of see more of the family in this. But the way that Raw is bookended with Justine once again being with her family and then seeing her father for who he truly is, which is, I guess, like a feast for her mother, right? Like her mother has been eating parts of her father to stave off this like family uh, cannibalism, perhaps maybe vampirism almost even curse right like it's never made explicit but we do learn that that's it is about the family whereas the family in this doesn't explain why our lead is the way she is at all until 
you know, she has a new family of choice, which is um, through deception, but ultimately ends up being where she needed to be all along. Yeah. I, I do think that there's a dialogue between those two movies. I don't know if this is like totally a rejection of it. I mean, the killing of the Justine character um, really like makes it feel that way that it is like combatively like rejecting or like kind of discarding what she's done before. But the silently suffering father figure in both films, and I'm not talking about her biological father in this case, it's it's the adoptive father. He's kind of suffering in the same way that the silently suffering father of Ra is. Like he's kind of this quiet loner character who's like just sort of like taking life's abuses in both movies. But here he does something about it. Um and in this case, it's in adopting people who are obviously not his son under the uh, false pretense that his family is back together again. So I, I definitely think it's in conversation with things she's done in Raw, at least in like a way where it's really easy to read her as an auteur. Like she, there's nothing by mistake in those films, you know, like this really like solidified for me. The things I liked about Raw were not things I was reading into it. You know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. My favorite thing about that movie is that it was really hard to like pin down with this like one to one metaphor. And I feel like Titan is even more <laughs> ambiguous about its themes. And like, if you try to like make it this really um, pat metaphor about like found family or like gender identity, it's really hard for you to say what specific things mean within that metaphor. Like, yeah. Yes. Why are her tits leaking motor oil? I can't explain what that means <laughs> <laughs> in like the grander like yeah. statement of the film, but uh, I really felt it in like a sort of visceral like gut level. Yeah, I like movies where there's not just one statement, and I think that's true of like all of us here. So yeah, it's it's nice to have all of those levels, and then just straight up like. I can't tell you what's going on except for the fact that it's gross. <laughs> also, like, that grossness and that for its own sake kind of weirdness about human bodies, I think that is valid in itself. Like, I don't think it has to yes. mean anything bigger than that. Like, it's been a long time since David Cronenberg made a true body horror film. Yeah. And I don't exactly. know that yep. anyone has ever made one as, you know, psychologically fucked up as his movies since then besides julia ducano yeah. like i've seen two films from her now that really tap into that same subliminal energy uh in a way that i don't know that even even his own son who's making body horror films now i haven't seen him yeah match those heights i mean possessor is real good but it is definitely not as weird feeling like it doesn't have that I want to say surrealism because that's like overused, but yeah, there's like a dreaminess to both this and like Cronenberg's films where it's just kind of like, these take place in a reality where these things happen. It's almost fairy, <laughs> fairy tale logic. Yeah, exactly. As we were watching it, Kat did say, oh, so she's like the French Cronenberg. Like those were the words that actually came out of Kat's mouth while we were watching this. And I was what like, high praise. kind of. <laughs> Yeah. High praise. I, I mean, I guess after only two films, it really is impossible to say for certain. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, another one that this reminded me of, although this was, I thought it was great immediately after watching and still think it's great, unlike 
the one I'm about to mention, which I have different feelings about basically every single time I think about it, was Mother, right? Because <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> this film is also about a lot of very strange, almost inexplicable things happening. Like it almost seems like what TV tropes would call like a random events plot. Because until it settles in with the uh, our lead, uh, Alexia, going to Vincent's house and taking on this like false identity of being Vincent's son, it does sort of seem like everything is very um, episodic. And then suddenly it slows way down and really dilates in on, or focuses in and dilates this plot about Alexia pretending to be this mute androgynous traumatized boy um and it's interesting because we actually do learn pretty early on that uh you know the the thing about the missing kid it's on the tv right around the same like the very first time that we hear about alex or uh, what first of alexia's crimes when she's like eating the cereal in her parents house her biological parents house. i was wondering if y'all think that she's just been murdering people her entire lives like if this is a kid she murdered as a kid. Oh, I, I didn't think those were connected. I thought I thought it was just like over the past few months, every time someone tries to make a sexual advance at her, any kind of like physical intimacy, she just immediately kills them. Like that's her first response. Yeah, because she even tries to do that with her new dad uh, when he tries to dance with her. She yeah. like, tries to kill him immediately. But Boomer's right in that in that scene. There are two news stories. Uh, the, the one of her killings is mm-hmm. preceded by the announcement that they are no longer looking into the disappearance of this child. They've kind of given up on it. No, um, and I also think it's interesting that she is a child who, or she is a person who was injured as a child in a way that does seem to have had long-term impacts on her brain chemistry. Like, it's pretty explicit. So the only way that she can really become herself again is to re-inhabit a child in a way it's like it's like her rebirth comes in assuming the identity of someone who has been missing since they were the age that she was when she first had her traumatic brain injury it's like a do-over yeah yeah like like (laughs) she gets to go back to that time and and kind of almost try again and she's doing it this time with a parent who actually cares about her and her well-being um, which i don't think she had the first time around yeah and it's it's almost like so Alexia's father is like outright hostile to her basically every time we see him on screen and doesn't understand her at all. And her mother figure is mostly absent in the way that her mother seems to care when she's coming out of the hospital and she seems to care about her, but is does not seem to have the ability to affect positive change in her own husband's behavior towards her daughter. Whereas Vincent's wife, when she shows up, who's Adrian's real, you know, biological mother, also has to take a hands-off approach of her understanding that Alexia is not Adrian and pretend not to know. There's a duality or they're foils for each other in that way as well. Yeah, I kind of love that moment of you got to take care of him i don't care who you are (laughs) like that someone can care about a person who's obviously just like losing their brain because of their kid being gone like that much but not enough to like want to stay with them like i said this wholesome like firefighter bizarro family i just 
I'm like, I understand. I understand why you'd become a better person. <laughs> that captures a specific feeling when you walk into someone else's like relationship drama or like familial drama. Mm-hmm. And like, there's obviously some like years long sort of like really intricate feud that you don't know what you're walking into and you just like touch a hot wire and you're like, oh, there's a lot going on here and I do not need to be involved. And you sort of like back out of the room, like that mother figure coming in and trying to relate to this kid that is not her kid. And then she's like, well, I'm not going to disrupt the fantasy for my ex-husband who obviously needs this in his life. Uh, I just hope you two like don't fuck each other up too bad, and I am out of the picture. <laughs> that lady is so cool. <laughs> yeah, maybe one of the more relatable characters on like just a uh, personal basis in this film for me. <laughs> like, oh, there's a lot going on here. It is also worth noting that Vincent, even though he is like a good person or a good guy to Alexia and is the father that she always kind of needed he does straight up murder one of his employees yeah to he did do that to hide that, that guy did misgender his son so he uh yeah <laughs> he deserved to be exploded I guess wow <laughs> I mean I guess that is one way to read what happened in the film that is one way to read yeah, it yeah cause that's that's kind of how I, I felt too I was like He's really standing behind not misgendering his son. <laughs> the guy basically calls him out. He's like, you know, that's not your kid. Uh, and he like, you know, refers to her as a her. And Vincent is not having that. I guess it's shocking to me because it seemed like Rayan uh, had a crush on Vincent. Right. Like yeah, that was definitely. my initial reading yeah. of the situation is you know, he's like, oh, chief, I waited up to you, you know, for you to give you this uh, meal that I saved because I knew that you would be back late. Like, there's clearly either uh, a need for a parental yeah. love or some other kind of love. There's definitely, like, a jealousy there, especially, like I said, the big turning point of the CPR scene. There's so many things that happen in that scene. Like, you can tell that Rayon is, like, jealous and immediately thrown off like wait a second like you're giving this not your child my job yeah and then also like flinging alexia into that role yeah yeah the tension is already building like from the get-go those two there is a weird sexual tension between tension between vincent and alexia too right definitely he tells her that directly not only so alexia is like, if you look at the story from Rayanne's perspective, there's, you know, he has this relationship with this older man who is his boss. Either it's a, a crush or it's simply that Vincent represents this father figure that Rayanne, that Rayanne needs. And then Alexia comes in and completely subsumes both of those potential roles and takes them over. And Rayanne is left out in the and I would say in the cold, but he literally burns to death. Um, <laughs> he literally explodes. And it's, you know, it's interesting because your sympathy should lie completely against Alexia. Not necessarily that, it, you know, yes. you should necessarily sympathize with Rayon or that you shouldn't. But in this particular narrative, you know, for whatever reason our sympathies don't necessarily lie with Alexia, but we don't hate her. Like we see her kill 
so many people. People who don't deserve but, it too. Yeah, exactly. People who don't deserve like, it. The, the film makes it and explicit yet, that it's not just people who are sexually aggressive to the point of committing an assault or at least not taking her non-consent as non-consent, right? It is just people yes. people who she seems to have a completely consensual relationship with and other people that just yeah. happen to be in the house at that time. Well, that time I think she's covering her tracks. Right. Yeah, that line of how many of you there are Yeah, you? how many roommates do you I, have? I like, laughed so hard. <laughs> yeah, and and that to me was an instantly that's the that's the point where I was like, "Cat, you this that's is a, this is a comedy." <laughs> like yeah. she sighs yeah. and she's like, "Uh, okay," and keeps going. Like that is very funny to me. I I don't know what to tell you if you don't think that's funny. The way I read it though, like there is the guy who follows her back from the car show at the beginning who is obviously assaulting her in her car and like being a real creep. Okay. That part is obviously like, it's like a rape revenge kind of situation. Like you're going to, you're going to assault me. I'm going to stab you in the brain. Right. But I think she reads all intimate advances from other human beings as just as disgusting and fucked up. Like the character, um, the, the actor from raw who like makes like very consensual advances to her and they're kind of cuddling on the couch and acting like they're on their first date. I think she finds that just as alienating and as upsetting, like any kind mm-hmm. of intimate physical contact with another human being is just as like, this is wrong. Like all my electrons are on fire right now. <laughs> um, and she reacts to the same violence with all intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's people that, don't deserve to be murdered that we see her murder, including her parents. Like, we know her parents are trash, but, like, they didn't do anything, like, openly towards her. And yet our sympathies still kind of lie with her, or at least we want her to, like, find a comfortable place. We see so much of her discomfort that we do want her to at least find, like, one comfortable space. There is a rehabilitation of her character over the course of the movie. Like, no matter how you feel about her yes. at the beginning, she has reached a new understanding on how it is, like, how it's possible to relate to people instead of machines by the end. Like, she uh, gradually, it, begrudgingly, uh, finds a way to relate to another person by the end. And I feel like that is... If anything else, if anybody ever says this movie is like pointless, nothing really changes in it. It's just like random acts of violence for their own sake. Like, I I really think there's a journey there in like learning to relate to one other human being, which uh, for her is a very tough, tall order. (laughs) Just that one person. Um, Yeah. And by the end, she still doesn't know how to do it right. Like, she's in bed with her father figure who... um, (laughs) <laughs> is in a very self-destructive mode to to put it lightly like he just lit himself on fire a fireman trying to like uh burn himself to death at the end um unsuccessfully uh she comes in and soothes his wounds a little bit and then tries to make out with him um and i think it's like literally she does not know how to relate to him well like she doesn't have the like physical language to relate to him as another person other than like crossing boundaries like she immediately takes it to incest uh because she doesn't know what the taboo is there and he has to like in that scene he like corrects her he's like no we don't do that that's not how we relate to each other and he like kind of like reorients their physical language in the scene and then ends up delivering her baby on that bed because that's what she needs in that moment is like actual help uh 
I find that very touching, even though the movie's like really fucked up and upsetting. Like I find their relationship is actually a pretty strong emotional core. Uh, and they're both very like wounded people. And it's kind of at times adorable that they found each other. <laughs> Despite all the disgusting human body shit that happens between them. Sometimes, you know, I watch movies like this and a lot of people would just see it as like random acts happening. But I have a hard time when people say a movie is pointless a lot of the time. But especially I would with this one. There's a lot of points, you know? And I think it's hard for people to digest to like, sometimes there's more than one point. I mean, to be fair, the movie is a provocation, right? Like, it is trying to yeah. get a very, like, immediate reaction out of you. And I feel like yes. time is kind to those kind of movies. Like, I'm yes. sure yeah. when Tetsuo the Iron Man came out in the 80s or 90s or whenever that movie originally premiered, like, I'm sure there were people who were like, that was just weird for no reason. It was just weird for weird's sake. Um, and I think over time, it has become more of a cultural oddity that you can look back at and be like, wow, there was some really strange subliminal expression of, like, man's relationship to, like, um, ever-evolving technology or whatever you think is going on in Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, and I think over time, especially as this decade of discourse is, like, more broadly defined by our relationship with gender as a culture, I think this film will have more of like a prestige to it. <laughs> there, there, there's an initial reaction that's gonna be like, oh, wow, that movie's just fucked up for no reason. Yeah. But I think over time, there'll be like more hefty analysis of it as like something that's really capturing something really visceral about our disengagement with gender. <laughs> this and Tetsuo would be a really good double. Feature, oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. Since you brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the sequence of events at the end. Where we have a scene in which Vincent, you know, is presented with incontrovertible proof that Alexia is not Adrian, right? And then says, it doesn't matter, you're still my son, because of this relationship that they have forged. And then Alexia kind of refuses to accept that, right? Because then she breaks the contract. Yeah, the very next scene is, you know, this extremely homoerotic, like, firefighter uh, rave in <laughs> in, in the yes. fire station, where it's just like a bunch of, like, half shirtless, it's like shirts and, it's like they were playing shirts and skins uh, at the <laughs> yeah, fire station, exactly. and then just decided thinking. to be like, okay, now it's a rave. They put Adrian up on the fire engine to dance, and Alexia does the exact same routine that she was doing with the car earlier down to like cupping her bound breasts and spreading, you know, her legs apart and then moving a non-existent like lock of hair, right? Because the hair has been shaved at this point. And, you know, Vincent comes in and sees that. And that's the point where he's like, okay, the contract is broken. Like you said, Brandon, and now there's, you know, he tries to set himself on fire and then, one thing that we didn't mention is in that dance scene, Alexia sees Rayon, like yes. his specter or his mm-hmm. ghost or just her conscience. And it's almost like she has taken all of these actions without conscience before. We don't know anything about what she was like before she had her head injury. Right. And I don't know. I'm sure that there's someone out there who has decided to make an ableist reading out of this, but she was injured as a child and it seems to have broken in her brain the parts of her that allow for empathy 
I don't know. I think there's already enough of what we see in the character in her when she causes the accident. Yeah. Like when she's revving that car engine. And then like kicking the back of the seat. And yeah. Then, like... She's already combative and not responsive in like a socially acceptable way in that first scene, which I guess you could read that as like ableist as well. Sort of, but I, I, you know, I, I've also seen, I, I guess the thing I'm going to talk about now is, is Shazam. Cause she's, he reaches around <laughs> to grab her when she unbuckles her seatbelt and tries to get into the back seat. And right. if we, rem- if you remember the movie Shazam that came out a couple of years ago, it's like, yeah, I mean, kids sometimes cause accidents, but it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's just, it's just an accident, right? I didn't really read into that, that she was doing anything other than what a child normally does. And maybe it's just because I have a much um, harsher opinion of how horrible children are just from the get go. (laughs) But This seems like totally normal behavior to me to kick the back of the seat. She is behaving not unlike other children that I see in public all the time. For, a kid who obviously is starved for attention yeah she's totally normal because it's so clear that her parents don't pay her the right amount of attention like any other parent be like okay i'm pulling this car over (laughs) yeah don't make me turn this around (laughs) I, i guess my thought process is finally actually having this parental affection um, and not just parental, but paternal affection that she was so thoroughly lacking kind of forces her conscience into existence for the first time, at least since her accident as a child, because she suddenly sees Rayon yeah. there and she recognizes that Rayon's death, even though she didn't kill him, she is directly responsible for it even more so or not more so, but just as much as she is for the people that she murdered herself. And in that moment decides to break that contract by getting up and dancing in her old, extremely feminine routine to out herself to uh, Vincent's colleagues to prevent him from being able to continue to play this game. And then after she does that, uh, she feels very bad and tries to have meaningless sex with a fire engine and yeah. uh, does not feel as into it as she was the time she got pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the fire engine's yeah. either not into it or she's not into it. It's like a meaningless sex scene with another car, <laughs> which I thought was a yeah. honestly something I completely forgot about the first time I watched it. Like that scene didn't register with me really. And then rewatching it uh, this time I was like, oh yeah, she did. She repeated the acts that the movie's like being yeah. like reduced to a second time. And like, it has a completely different meaning yeah. the second time. It's just not a good rebound. Vehicle. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's the uh, Tinder After, hookup. Like, a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and I think that like this breaking of the contract and just her general like avoidance of intimacy and all of this, it feels very like also self-sabotage, you know, especially like bringing up the consciousness and like the conscious is like purposely creating a world in which she doesn't belong. It's a little bit you of know, self-sabotage, but it's also, like, a way for her to, like, finally actually relate to another person. Because there is this sort of, like, artifice in their father-son relationship. But in the last scene, which is what immediately follows, when she's in bed with Vincent and he ends up delivering her baby, that's when she finally tells him her real name. And he starts calling her that name. And it's actually, like, the only time in her life she actually has, like, a actual, like person-to-person 
exchange, like an actual social response between two people that, where she's not faking it. But I feel like I just cut off the flow of where Boomer was going with like what, he, what you were saying about the ending. Yeah, um, she has this conscience, you know, this moment of having it. And then she, you know, does self-sabotage and then immediately gives birth. And, you know, it's just sort of like, yeah, there was no other real place that this could go. Obviously, there was no way she was ever going to be able to survive having that like car baby which I want to talk about the car baby. And I also want to talk about the father's steroid usage because we haven't touched on that at all. (laughs) And there's something interesting and weird going on there too. And I was wondering what y'all's thoughts were about that. I just saw that as part of this like extremely macho world. He's carved out for himself. Like it just seemed like it's part of like that hyper, like toxic masculinity, even though he's like actually kind of a softy. I mean, with the exception of, like, blowing up a guy. But, you know, he is desperately, desperately trying to fill this role as well. Yeah, he needs to be the king, like, muscle man in this, like, little, like, muscle Mm -hmm. boy world that he's carved out for himself. Where he's, like, he calls himself God to all the other firefighters. And he needs to, like, prove that by being the biggest, like, muscle in the firehouse. And like, there's a scene um, where he shoots up a lot of like too much steroids into his butt. And then uh, tries to do like um, body lifts, I don't, I pull-ups yeah. uh, alone in the warehouse. And just like yelling at himself because his body's kind of failing him. He can't keep up with like the masculine figure he used to carve when he was younger. Uh, it, it's It's honestly just as grotesque as a lot of the stuff she does to her body. Like it's not very different from the binding yeah. to have all these like really you know, brutal bruises on his ass cheeks. And then like his body is so hard, but it's still like kind of bloated in a way. A lot of middle-aged bodies are. Um, so you have these, all these muscles on top of like the, you know, just sort of like normal midweight fat that you get when you <laughs> cross your thirties. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm from experience here. Uh, not that I have muscle on top of my fat. It's just fat for me, but there's something like kind of grotesque about how macho his body is. Uh, that I feel like is paralleled with Alexia's, you know, pregnancy body horror. But I, I didn't read it into it any more specifically than that. I just thought that steroids were like an extension of his like extremely macho point of view in the world. Yeah. I didn't have any of my own thoughts. I was just curious what yours were. <laughs> <laughs> I think if like I really wanted to boil this movie down to like one metaphor, which I think would be extremely insulting. And I don't know why I'm doing this, but like there's this sort of like grander view of it where it's like, Human bodies are pathetic and disgusting, <laughs> and like machines yeah. are beautiful and efficient <laughs> and sexy. <laughs> I feel like there's this kind of like you know bird's eye view of the world in that way, um, especially when you try to get those bodies to conform to some sort of like gender ideal. Uh, they just become more and more grotesque. Yeah, uh, Boomer, you were late to the party off mic earlier when I was like mentioning to Brandon that like five minutes before. I was trying to find the perfect quote from the Cyborg Manifesto. Or no, you were there. And I just, like, didn't have time to, like, really scour it. But, like, that's just, like, what I kept thinking this whole time, you know, is, like, this idea of, like, a sci-fi, like, feminism and, you know, creating new bodies that better suit us. It's, yeah, very present, even if grotesque. Should we watch Alita Battle Angel next? Is that what I'm hearing? 
I've never seen it. I would prefer not to. I haven't seen it. I did. I did. And I would like to say, uh, no, thank you. I feel like that's if the Wachowskis made Titan <laughs> would be Alita Battle Angel. Well, you were you were talking earlier about how <laughs> the the Wachowski sisters make movies that like aren't really for you, and my first thought was about Jupiter Ascending, which is extremely exactly extremely my trash. Like it's really <laughs> yeah, bad. Mine it's, too. it's right up my alley. It warms the yeah. soul somehow. I don't understand. I, but mine too. Same, <laughs> Eddie trash. Redmayne in that movie is the only one that was giving me what I wanted, uh, which is disgusting to say because I don't care about that man in general. But uh, he brings this like kind of you know demented energy to that film that I wish everyone else was bringing. I do want to talk about the car baby since you brought it up. Uh, do, you, do you have any specific thoughts on how that's realized on screen? Um, it's cool, and I also <laughs> it's I think yes. it's very it's it's almost like the baby has infused her whole body, right? Because right. it's not it's not just like as she's giving birth, it's like the outer egg shell of her skin is cracking. It's like she's actually literally shedding her skin in order to become the perfect metal vessel. <laughs> this perfect earthen vessel for um as Madison Cawthorn said, uh this this vessel to bring this life, <laughs> this monstrosity into the world. Uh I I kind of don't understand what's happening, but I don't need it to be wrapped up in a little bow for me. I don't even understand like if it's supposed to be a metaphor for something, I don't know what that metaphor could possibly <laughs> be, but I had a great time. I couldn't help but think at the end of Rosemary's Baby. I mean, I know there weren't a bunch of people just shouting like "Hail Satan," but like, it's still that reaction of like, you don't get the full on right baby. Like, you right. just see the bit of the back, and you know, there's something so like chilling of like not even knowing like how to fill in the other details, like just having that mystery. You know, not full on like a razor head horrifying baby, but like just not having the details in this movie that has been so explicit, you know, in so many ways that hasn't flinched from showing you so many things like this, that withholding at the end is, I don't know. It's great. I find it interesting because it's like both doing exactly what you're saying, where it's like it is kind of leaving things open ended and not like too visually explicit. But, like, it does wrap up a lot of stuff. Like, at the end, her new father figure has an actual son he gets to raise on his own. And she's kind of completed her transformation from a sociopath to someone who can relate to other people. She at least has the ability now in the final scene. And also, she's kind of turned into a version of herself that could be Adrian. Like, there's a scene where um, Vincent makes her shave. And he's like, if you shave it, it will grow, which is like an old wives tale and like won't yeah. work. Right. But this is also a fairy tale movie. And at the final scene, yeah. she's giving birth. She has a little dirtbag mustache. Uh, so like that works. And like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of stuff is wrapped up in that final scene. And like, you know, the pregnancy obviously, you know, comes to its natural conclusion. And yet there are a lot of things that are just sort of open for interpretation. I think it's hard to do both at the same time. <laughs> I know you brought up Mother earlier, Boomer, but I, that one's funny to me as well because, like, you'll hear a hundred people say uh, Mother is, like, too tied to its own metaphor and it's too 
symbolic and like, I can't believe he hammered home this very obvious one-to-one analogy in this film. And then if you ask those hundred people uh, what that analogy is, you'll get a hundred different responses. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, I think yeah. this one has the same thing. Like you could probably lock on to different readings of the film and come away explaining how it sort of like is unsubtle in that metaphor. Um, and you're having a completely different experience from the person sitting next to you in the theater. And I, I think that's kind of hard to pull off. I like this like watch list of like uh, related films that we've carved out here. Like obviously you should watch raw. Yes. Um, if you haven't seen that as well. Um, Mother came up. Uh, I, I think the wild boys has a very similar approach to gender. And I just like to Tetsuo. make people watch. The wild <laughs> boys. And yeah. Tetsuo is the other one um, that came up naturally. I just like to make people watch. Tetsuo, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that comes to mind? Like what's, what's the, uh, What's the like double triple feature with Titan that you would uh, advise to people? Oh, maybe it's uh, stretching it a little bit too long, but I would even maybe go for Videodrome. Actually, yeah. that was what I was gonna say. I was wondering if Videodrome oh would be God. an appropriate. <laughs> yeah, so we're in agreement. Videodrome. Cronenberg's Crash as well. Not not the uh, racism oh, is bad Crash, but the uh, car wrecks are dang, sexy Crash. You're right. <laughs> oh, Crash would have. That's Crash is such a good choice. You're right. Dang it. It was right there. <laughs> you could watch any number of Cronenberg movies and I'm sure they'd all work. I know. I just think of Videodrome as like the disgusting, like like you said, like the wet horror. Like, <laughs> Yeah, uh, Videodrome takes care of the uh, human body is disgusting part and uh, Crash takes care of yeah. the um, cars are sexy part. <laughs> the movie's doing both. <laughs> And I'm sure um, gynecological tools for monstrous women uh, play a part in this <laughs> milieu as well. I guess it depends on what your triple feature thesis is. If it's just like body horror anxieties about like being a person who is pregnant, th- that would be one thing. And that's kind of separate from, you know, the body horror of like the gender fuckery that you were talking about, especially as it relates to like, are you even attracted to human beings at all? You know? Yeah. There's plenty of movies you could watch that are like um, about car fetishism. Uh, And there's also plenty of movies you could watch that are about uh, pregnancy, body horror. Like those two topics are covered uh, in other films. They're rarely synesthetized in this way. They're rarely combined in such a grotesque, clear form here. I love the Twitter meme format that's just like, you know, X movie spoilers in four images. And it's just like four sort of meme images that if once you've seen the movie, you're like, haha, that's very funny. Um, obviously, not everybody can do it properly. And some people just spoil it. But it's like, um, it makes me think of a clip from some show, it some TLC or Discovery Channel, you know, post- actually being the learning channel and post being the discovery channel when they both just became like repositories for bad reality television. And I only have seen the clip on the soup. So I don't know. I can't recall. I know exactly what you're talking about. Is it the one with the the guy who's in love with his car? He's like, yes. And I I post, (laughs) (laughs) I post an image of whatever movie I'm watching as kind of a diary on my Facebook feed. Like, it's usually posters. Yeah. But if I feel like a movie's been discussed enough, like, I don't need to, like, alert other people to its existence, and I'll just post, like, a funny related GIF. And the GIF I posted for 
Titan was that man lying on the curb and kissing, kissing his car. His car. <laughs> <laughs> and and his dad is like, is this because of the divorce? Like that just those two clips tell a whole story. Those are like the, you know, unused baby shoes of reality television where it just tells you a whole lot in a very minimal space. There's your double feature. I, I think that's an episode of my my strange addiction. My strange addiction like that. that makes the most sense. Um, but you, congratulations, Brandon, for being the first time in however many months I've actually regretted getting rid of my Facebook account <laughs> that I missed seeing that. <laughs> strange minds, you know, strange minds. Yeah. Well, like I said, I did post my top films of the year list on the website, and I'll link that in the show notes. Uh, next week on the podcast, we will discuss the top 10 films of the year with, uh, you know, James, Hannah, and Brittany weighing in. So expect more Willy's Wonderland um, praise from Brittany next episode, <laughs> even though it was the bottom of Allie's Nick Cage list this episode. Okay, just because it wasn't my favorite of the year doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. I mean, my favorite of the three was definitely Pig as well. Brittany's on her own trajectory there she's on her own platform we all have our own cage we all rest in our own cages yes uh and for the rest of the month we are going to keep posting lists i believe total there should be six or seven uh depending on how many people weigh in with their own individual list and by the end of the month i should have some kind of aggregated best films of the year according to swamp flicks list and I, i will alert the podcast listeners whenever that's up but stay tuned to the website throughout the month people will be listing movies they enjoyed you will not see the same movies repeated in different rankings. It's not going to be the same, like 15 to 20 movies sort of like rearranged with different numbers all month. I think we all have our own taste and interest uh, in a way that keeps it exciting. We get more disparate every year. I think we get more and more disparate from each other every year. I like that. I feel like by 2025 or 2026, it's going to be impossible to do our site-wide consensus favorites because there will be like <laughs> five or six movies that all of us saw and then the rest of everyone else's list is going to be just one is going to be made up of one-offs. I do use the podcast as leverage to make people watch stuff I'm interested in. So like I made people watch I blame society. Y'all were probably going to watch Titan anyway, but like I was like, well, yeah. I, I should squeeze one more in and make them watch my favorite movie of the year. And I do that throughout the year. I, I, Lucky was on my list, and that was like one of the first 2021 movies we covered uh, last year for the podcast. Yeah. So there is a way to weaponize consensus. You can use this podcast for your tactical advantage. Oh, dang. <laughs> I don't think I'm strategic enough for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the 4D chess that you could be playing. <laughs> or you could just watch whatever movies interest you. And I'm sure next time we talk, the three of us, it will be something that has nothing to do with best of the year stuff. And it is nice to take a break from that. So stay tuned. Check out swampflakes.com. And we'll talk to you all soon. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye.